This is Blood Bank, a podcast where hospital workers share a story from an experience in medicine that has stayed with them, and then they tell us why. I'm Amanda Rubano, and I'm a medical student at the University of Rochester. Today, we'll hear a story from Kevin Boyd. Kevin is the Associate Director of Chaplaincy Services at the University of Rochester Medical Center. He is a supervisor in the Clinical Pastoral Education Program, as well as a faculty member in the Division of Medical Humanities and Bioethics. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Amanda. One, thank you for being here. And two, can you tell us why you chose the story you did today? Thanks for having me. So this is a story that happened very early in my professional development, and it confronted me with the depth um, of our need to make meaning out of a difficult situation, even if that meaning itself is something harmful or destructive. Uh, And it reminded me of the difficulty many, or all of us perhaps, have living with uncertainty. I'm really looking forward to hearing it and talking about it after. The floor is yours. So this is a story that starts at the beginning of an on-call shift. At the time, I was um, a chaplain resident, and so as a chaplain, we do all kinds of things in the hospital, some of which people might expect and others which they don't. Lots of times, I think people just assume that we're there to answer Bible questions for patients. Um, That's really only a very small sliver, hopefully, (laughs) of what it is we do. I like to tell folks who ask what a chaplain can do that... um, There's lots of people in the hospital who are here to try and take care of you. And often there's a specific part of your body or process within your body that's misbehaving and we're trying to pay attention to it. And we can get very focused on that one thing and forget about all the rest of you. And also we're just very busy in the hospital. Your nurses have many people to take care of and your physicians and providers, you know, you only see them once a day for a couple of minutes. Everyone's just very busy. So my job as a chaplain in the hospital is to remind us all, including you, the sick person, that you're more than just your broken part. And also that of all the people in the hospital, by and large, I'm the one person who has as much time as it takes. And so if you have something that's bothering you that you need to talk about or think about, I'm the person who has the time to take my jacket off and hang it on the back of the chair and sit next to you until we get somewhere with it. And so we're present at people's deaths, at some people's births, um, at some people's heart attacks. We're present when people come in through the trauma bay, having been shot or stabbed or electrocuted or whatever terrible thing has happened to them. We're there in the middle of the night when people wake up and find themselves in the middle of an existential crisis or the dark night of the soul. So on this particular day, I was picking up the on-call pager. It's 8.30 in the morning. And the person I was supposed to pick it up from was late, uh, which is never a good sign because it means usually that they were in the middle of something um, and couldn't make it down to do the handoff in time uh, because none of us like to be on call for one second longer than is absolutely necessary. So 8.31 rolls around and your person isn't there to do handoff, you know something's up. So 8.35 rolls around and the outgoing person shows up and hands me the pager and says, you need to go down to the emergency department, which is like the worst possible thing you can hear at the beginning of your 24-hour shift. And he said, there's a mom there and her baby has died and they're not sure what has happened, um, but... She put him down to go to sleep, it looks like, and when she came back to check on him, he was dead. And um, 
they think it's a case of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, which is pretty poorly understood thing that sometimes happens to babies. So anyway, I go down to the emergency department and um, I see the, the pediatric area where the baby, where the baby's body is. And people are still, there's still some people around, but you can tell after you've worked in the hospital long enough when a thing is over, people are starting to disperse and everyone is sort of um, walking around with their head down, droopy dog uh, kind of thing. And so I started asking around, hey, where's, where's, where's the mom? Did anyone see the mom? And no, no one's seen the mom. No one knows where she is. Don't know, don't know, I haven't seen her. Finally, someone says, I think she went outside. And so I went out that side door and this was down in Florida. It was a already a sort of muggy summer day. And I saw a woman sitting on the curb with just her head down, just sitting there. I figured that's probably her. And so I went and I sat down beside her and I said, you know, my name's Kevin. Um, I'm the chaplain. And then I didn't say anything else for a minute. I just said, I'm going to sit here with you for a minute. And we sat for a long time. I don't, you know, it's sort of impossible to know how long it feels like forever. And she isn't saying anything. She's just intermittently crying and then not and then crying again. And we sit there for so long that I sort of space out for a second, to be totally honest. And she says something, but I don't catch it because I was just accustomed to sitting in silence for 10 minutes. And so I said, I'm sorry, what? And she finally, she says, I must have done something really terrible. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, I must have done something really terrible for God to punish me by taking away my baby. And it just took my breath away when she said that, that she was sitting out there thinking that because of something she had done at some point in her life, that God would punish her by murdering her baby. You know, this is one of those moments where you can sort of ask yourself, like, oh, geez, what would I say to that person? <laughs> and I didn't really plan it. It just sort of jumped out of my mouth. I said, sort of incredulously, I think, is that really what you think happened? And uh, another long pause, and she looks at me, and she says very plainly, no, it just makes it easier if I have a reason. And again, I found what she said so stunning <laughs> that it sort of knocked the breath out of me. Here's this woman whose new baby has just died, her only baby. And, and what I hear her saying to me is, I'd rather live in a world with grotesque and horrific rules rules that require the murder of a child as recompense for some misdeed. I'd rather live in that world than live in a world where unexpectedly, randomly, I can put my healthy child down to go to sleep at the end of the night, wake up to check on him and find him dead. And I was just panicking on the inside because that's not the way I think. <laughs> that's not the way I want to think. It's not a religious tradition that I would ever want any part of. It's one I would actively seek to dismantle and destroy. It feels like 
to me, such a rat bastard version of a god. And I don't think she really believed that either, right? I mean, she said, no, it just makes it easier if I have a reason. And that at least her gut impulse is that that world, the world of randomness and chaos, the world I think that we actually do live in, is more terrible and more unlivable than a world ruled over by some sadistic cosmic judge. To me, this story is about two things. It's about accepting the uncertainty of this world and really the nature of humans to desperately make sense of it when there is no sense to be made. On the one hand, you have a woman who is admitting that she would rather live in a world with a damned and twisted rule book, but where there are rules, than in a world of randomness, where something like this can just happen. And then it's a, a story about answering the question of, now what? It is. It's in some ways less a question trying to figure out what happened because it's happened and it isn't going to be undone, and more a question of figuring out, how am I going to go on with my life, now knowing what I know about the way the world really works? And do I even want to? Is it, you know, how, how, do, how do you, how do you? I spend a lot of time with people talking about the difference between finding a causal kind of meaning, the meaning in this, as opposed to the meaning that can be made out of it. And so instead, I often will talk to people about our ability to make meaning out of a thing. You know, I know the last time we spoke, I mentioned this. Um, Viktor Frankl wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning, but he wrote it in the context of being a Jewish psychiatrist in the time of the Holocaust. And he ran experiments when he was a prisoner in the concentration camp. And he found the people that fared that atrocity best were the people that found meaning in their suffering. And then knowing this, we have to ask ourselves, is there a lesson in the suffering? So so I, this is my own personal bias, I, I avoid the language of lessons and have replaced it with sort of finding meaning in the thing. And for me, that's the task of grief. Um, Tom Attig wrote a book um, called How We Grieve, um, where he talks about grief as the task of relearning the world, relearning the world in light of this new information. And so, you know, her world was shattered, it's broken you know, into, who knows, a billion pieces when she went in there and found that baby not breathing. Ended up in the hospital sitting on that curb with me on the muggy morning. The task of grief is going to be to figure out what it looks like to put all those pieces back together into some new mosaic. A part of me says to myself, I can't ask her that question right now. It's not right. It's not the right time. This just happened. Two or three months from now or six months from now, I might broach that question. Right now, I think my task in the middle of all of this chaos is to just help her survive, to, to get even to that starting line of the process. You know, the other reason I like the language, I resist the language of lessons and I like the language of making meaning out of it is that there's this huge element of agency there. When I say to you, Amanda, what meaning are you gonna make out of it? Then 
by putting a lot of control in your court. What are you going to, here's this thing, this experience that's been, it's happened to you. What are you going to do with it? There's this lump of clay. What are you going to make out of it? For me, at least, when I, when I stick with the lesson metaphor, <laughs> um, there's not a lot of freedom in lessons. Like when I tell you to learn multiplication tables, five times four equals 20, no matter how you slice it. And either you learn or you don't. And you don't have a lot of agency there, right? There's not a lot of creativity or capacity. You know, when you're, in this latest case, when your baby dies, I don't think there's just one possible thing to learn from that or one thing to take away from it or one way that changes you or transforms you. There's a bazillion. Some of them maybe potentially very transformative in a powerful and positive way. Others, many not. But it isn't just a, you know, it's not just one thing. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, it's really important to, um, in the midst of an experience that has taken away so much control and agency, you know, the sudden death of your baby when you literally did nothing wrong, um, and move into a space where you can start to at least feel like you're reclaiming some of that in the ability to make your own meaning out of not have to learn some lesson that some, you know, sadistic, twisted God wanted to teach you because you didn't go to Sunday school enough when you were 10. You know, I think if I synthesize, if I make meaning, rather, if I can employ the way that we have talked about this, if I can make meaning out of our conversation, I've gotten three things, and it kind of goes on a timeline. Number one, four inevitable hardship to understand i i can't help but rehear my mom's words like nothing is guaranteed and to recognize that and to appreciate what we have number two is when something really tragic happens to understand that it might not be the time to find meaning in it it might not be the time to ask people to pick themselves up and to to rebuild that mosaic it might just be the time to survive it and then when you're at the starting line to start to ask yourself how do we make meaning i think the point of this podcast is to make is to find the moments um that made us pause and the way that we made meaning out of them and the way that they can be useful to to other people to prepare them for things that they either might miss that might be really important or things that were hard to begin with and they didn't know how to process. Your, your, mom's, um, your mom's admonition reminds me of a line from a Death Cab for Cutie song, which um, I've now been told by students is dad music, <laughs> even though I used to still think that it was cool. Yes, very. Uh, what Sarah said it was actually a song about being in the ICU in hospital and any reader or listener out there and doesn't know it it's a great song you should listen to it um uh ben gibbard says um that um, every plan is a tiny prayer to father time which i've always liked i think it's true i think um yeah the, the did him and my mom talk probably before he... <laughs> he probably stole that line from me yeah oh man uh well i thank you tremendously i um I hope our listeners took something away, um, and I hope we can kind of move forward and, and make meaning. I'm Amanda Rubano, and you're listening to Blood Bank.